having uh, during the conference. Um, there's some things that um, have been on my heart uh, since I first found out about the move of God that, that has been promised to the earth so that we can um, uh, expect, stay in tune with what God's doing in the earth. Like you don't want to be the church that fights against women preachers when God is pouring out his glory on all flesh. Now I'm not saying that's us, but what I am saying is that there are so, so many of God's people who are so stuck in tradition and striving against one another that they're going to miss what God's doing. Because there are certain characteristics about God's glory that lift if there's strife and contention in the body of Christ. And so we don't want to be those people. Uh, We don't want to be those people who miss the move of God because the enemy has told us there's something else more important to focus on than what he wants us to be focused on. You got me? Uh, there's nothing more important than what God's doing uh, at this time in the earth. And there's nothing more important than us doing our part in it because everybody who's born again has a part in everything that God is doing. Amen. But we have to know our part and we have to do our part and we have to stay positioned and poised so that our part will be fulfilled. So I want you all to start thinking in terms of greater power, greater glory, greater responsibility for you, and greater focus on what God's doing. Um, You can't be concerned about your bills and your man and your not man and in you know, what you drive in, what you eat, how many restaurants. You can't be bothered with that kind of stuff. And stay poised to receive what God's doing in the earth. That's why God takes care of us. He, at some point, you got to walk in faith that provision is there for everything you need. And you're not struggling over those things anymore and get distracted by that, you know, and run off and take care of that and then come back and you've missed what you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. This bus ain't waiting on everybody. You understand? You can't just say, driver, hang on a minute. I got to go get this, that, and the other. It's like the the uh, the ten virgins. Be a wise one. Yeah. Be wise. Always be ready and poised uh, and, and stay focused on what God's doing and focused on your part in it, and you won't miss it. Keep short accounts with God and humanity. Don't run around striving with people, mad at somebody, can't get along. Somebody didn't speak to me. They don't notice me. They think I'm still no good. They think, you understand what I'm saying? Grow up so that we can do what God wants us to do and we won't miss it. Amen. Because this bus is not going to stop and wait forever for everybody to grow up and start responding appropriately to the things of God. Amen. So I I had Tippy find a couple of um, prophecies that we had that were archived. And I think what I'll do is uh, I'll hold on to these until the end because I want to um, help us 
to get our faith in the right position for what God is going to do uh, this week at the conference uh, for those three days. Um, so um, the prophecies, though, are from December 30th, 2009. That was the year of the prophetic people, the people who are equipped with an explosive word from God. Um, are these available, available, or can you send them around or... Okay, all right. Uh, read them. You know, even if you were here when they were read the first time, uh, read them for the first time this time. I was here. I was here. Yeah, I know you were. Um, okay, so in 2014, the year of the believer. Amen. So when we say the year of, that just means this is the first year God's announcing it, and from every year hereafter, this is the same. This prophecy holds, okay? Prophecies don't terminate at the end of 12 months. Or other than that, we couldn't live by this word. You got me? So this, just so you know, so you're not looking for something fresh. Well, what was the next year? Uh, uh, uh. Just park it right here on this, all right? Because these prophecies are very important for us, especially now, because God is fulfilling his word. He's fulfilling many things in his word. Um, the other thing is that um, the the mandate for this ministry to move in the glory of God is more than, it's as old as this ministry is. So our scripture, Habakkuk, the second chapter of Habakkuk is what we use as a working, uh, a working, uh, uh, orders from God. But it ends with saying, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Is it 214? That is, as the waters cover the seas. So we're looking for God's power to increase and we're looking for our position in that glory and in that power. You're not just going to sit back and say, oh, it's, you know, the water's covered the seas. You know, all of that. What does that mean for you? And what's your part in it? And what can you expect from God? What can you expect him to do? So these things are all very important because I'm seeing more and more that there are things, indicators to indicate that this is coming together according to God's timetable. And it's my job to make sure that the people under the sound of my voice are prepared and know what God wants them to do and are, are participating in what God wants for them. So you'll notice that for many, many years we have had prophecy after prophecy about the bride and the bridegroom and God's love for us. And if you don't know your love now, you probably missed that train. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, and there are certain ways that you respond to the love of God, like you trust him. You got me? Uh, these are things that, that God's been trying to develop in us to work out the things of the world that make us insecure and make us, you know, uh, uh, vulnerable, make us weak, make us victims, all of that kind of stuff. That gets replaced with his word where he starts having a bride that's confident in him, that's secure in his love, that trusts him and can live by faith in his word and what he has told her he is going to do for her and in the earth. And so what God wants is a secure people who understand the covenant relationship 
The reason he talks about bride and bridegroom is because he means that. He means that he wants to be in our lives just like a real good husband would be and having a real good wife. You understand what I'm saying? And so he wants us to start to understand the depths of his love and how much he has sacrificed for us. And so he's ready now to pour out his spirit on all flesh more than he's ever done in the history of the world. So we are in a position to experience something that the Old Testament saints certainly didn't get. And even in the the beginning of the first uh, beginning of the church, they didn't get as much as God has planned for us. And so I want us to start focusing on expecting more from God's spirit, not from the material realm of the earth. Because I have a feeling when we say expect more, people have chitching ideas in their brain and we're limited to what this earth uh, possesses. But what we're talking about is unlimited spiritual power, unlimited ability to do everything that God has called us to do to the point where you don't even think about, you don't even worry about natural. You know they take care of themselves. You got me? So you've got to get faith in yourself and faith in God to the point where you know these things are taken care of because when he starts pouring out his spirit, he can't wait for you to get upset because you you got to build us late. you you got to know that God's taking care of that. You don't care what you see here. You're more focused on what he's doing and what's out there in the realm of the spirit. So I found a uh, uh, a um, series of, of uh, videotapes uh, that, uh, I was not aware who this gentleman was, but that's not a big issue. I, what, what I get from God, I, I get when He sends it to me and, and it's always on time. You know, it's on time for me. And so this is the story about a gentleman by the name of Tommy Welchel, W-E-E-L-C-H-E-L. If you want to, he's on YouTube, so I encourage you to look at these videos for yourself. He doesn't have a whole lot of them, but there are some some things that that God has given me, and I pass them on to you uh, simply because I feel they will be very informative and preparatory for you uh, for things to get you uh, enlightened in your spirit and enlightened in your mind so that you'll be able to... um, uh, move with God when he wants you to move. The other one was Henry Groover. Hopefully you guys have looked him up and listened to some, and not just one and come back and say, oh, I did it. But listen intently to what God is telling you that this man's message is. Henry Groover's message was really forgiveness and repentance of sin and seeing the miracle that that could do when, when you remit sins. And see, if the body of Christ don't need that, I don't know what else we need. That is so foundational. But it'll shock you how quickly people walk away from the foundation and forget that's even a principle of God's word. But I'm telling you, it'll work miracles in your life. Because it's your key to righteousness, it's your key to holiness, keeping short accounts with God, being honest before him. And allowing yourself to let the love of God flow through your heart. Because how are you going to have compassion for a stranger and, and, and sacrifice and all the things God wants you to do to help somebody 
if you don't know how to forgive. If you're running around thinking everybody owes you something, you're some big victim and all this kind of stuff, the devil will look at you and say, shoot you dead right on the spot. You understand? Because the more sin in your life, the bigger target you are. Amen? We all know that. And so it's about disciplining yourself to keep a pure heart before God and a good conscience before God and love humanity. And it can only be done through forgiveness, folks. You can't go around and pretend and hug on everybody and all that kind of stuff and think you got love. You you got to get it the way God says you get it. And so if you're willing to forgive, you'll get love. You understand what I'm saying? You'll get the real thing that way. And so this gentleman, Tommy Welchel, I'll tell you a little bit about his history. He was born, I think the year he was born was 1940 maybe 42 or something like that. He was 17 years old, I know that much, in 1960. So it was at 43. And so he he was born in Oklahoma. He said he had a a pretty good upbringing. His dad owned a farm, and he he liked living there. He liked uh, the farm life. He had a horse. He had dog. He had cows. But he said his father was a bootlegger. And he got caught by internal revenue. And how many of you know when they get you, you your life is over? <laughs> I'm just saying. You understand? That's why it's good to pay your taxes because they don't play. And they confiscated the farm. Uh, and, and Tommy went through a period of rebellion because he didn't have his horse anymore. He didn't have all these things. But prior to that time, he said his mother had taken him as a boy to all of the healing evangelists he went to all the tent meetings uh aa allen allen william branham jack cole uh if you don't know who those people are you can google them better yet go in our library and get some books and read about them so you'll understand that you're not just a church goer but you're a member of the body of christ amen and get yourself read up on church history, legitimate church history, not this religious stuff, amen, but legitimate church history so that you'll understand what has been happening in the family of God up until now and what you can expect uh, continue. And so Tommy, uh, in his rebellion, he would uh, cause a lot of trouble in the city where they lived in Oklahoma. And he said one day uh, a gentleman came by and warned him that the sheriff had a warrant out for his arrest because he had been breaking and entering. He said the people know know you and know who you are. And so he said there was a, a, a boy, a friend boy his age and his grandmother that he knew, and they were moving to California. And he said he didn't want to go to California. But when they told him the police had a warrant for him, he said, okay, I'll go. He went to California with this grandmother and her grandson, and he said while they were in California, he said he and this this grandson met this girl, and they were fighting over the girl. And so he said, I won the fight, but he got the girl. And he said, <laughs> he said, when the grandmother saw how he had beat her grandson up, she put him out. She said, uh-uh, you, you got to go. So here's 16-year-old Tommy Welchel. He was homeless in Pasadena, California, never been there before in his life. And he said he would go down to the boardwalk at Muscle Beach or Venice Beach and sit there every day. He said, I just was sitting. I didn't have anything to do. He said, a couple ladies start walking up toward me. 
He said, and I recognized them because they were the same. They looked the same as the ladies that my mother used to look like that. He said, they were church ladies, holiness ladies. He said, and they had the glory bun on their heads because when they were shouting, dance, the bun would come loose and hairpins would fly and hit everybody and, and all of that. And he said, and they had the lace up boots and long dresses. And so he said he was going to talk to them. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll see if they'll maybe give me something to eat or take me to lunch or whatever, whatever. And so they sat down and talked with him, told him about the Lord and prayed with him. And he said he figured he would fake the prayer. And he said when they got finished praying with him, he felt different. He said, I'm a Christian. He was shocked that God overrode his pretense and touched his heart got me and so they said well yes you're a christian he said no i mean for real and they said yeah for real you know they were expecting him to get saved and he's expecting to get off scot-free and con them how many of you know when people are really anointed you can't con nobody amen god is not gonna let you take care take advantage of any of his servants are you kidding me amen the reason you don't get called out is because of mercy amen but he got saved and so it was god's will for tommy to go to california to get saved he found out these ladies lived at a um a christian compound it was a um, collection of buildings houses apartments dormitories and a chapel on this property. It was called Pisgah, P-I-S-G-A-H, a a biblical term, amen. Uh, There was Mount Pisgah in, I forget where it is. You'll see it back in in Moses' day. It was spoken of then. But anyway, this Pisgah home was where these ladies lived. And he found out after he got to that property, there were a bunch of saints that had been children during the Azusa Street Revival, which was from 1906, I think, to 10, or some four to to 10 in that range. It was the early 1900s. And so these women had stories to tell, and he met other people that lived there that had stories to tell. And so I'll read as much. I'm going to read from his book because I think it's very, very important because it is very timely. One of the things I want to impress upon you is that this man knows for a fact that God chose him to hear these stories and to memorize them and to repeat them. But he was not allowed to repeat these stories for 50 years. Amen. And so it's a timing thing with all of the stuff that God does. Timing is extremely important. That's why I take the time to share certain things with you, um, you know, just so you'll, because they're timely. We need this now. And so we need to hear what God is speaking through this gentleman so that we can uh, be, this picks up where some of the other, uh, where say for the God's generals, books that we've read and stories we've heard, this picks up in that same flow but it's got more power and more anointing to it because there are many, many reports of people that will 
pastors who just read from his book as I'm doing and the power of God falls in the atmosphere just like it did at Azusa Street. So that is my prayer that we would receive that harvest of the anointing uh, and, and know what to do with it when it comes upon us because uh, this is no time for you to be mired in your past. Let me just say that. Um, you've got to get steeped in your new creation person. Yeah, if you're going to go on, you you know, the devil will so hinder you and so entrap you if you can't let go of who you used to be. You know, that person died on the cross. That person is not, there's no life support for that person anymore. There's just crucifixion. Amen. And so we have to learn how to live in the new creation life 100%. So um, let me see where I thought I had my page. <clears throat> okay, I'll start with this. So I've caught you up on who Tommy Welchel is. Uh, okay, we'll we'll just go here. Uh, this this starts out uh, where he's talking about the hundred year prophecy. Sometime in 1910, Seymour just stood up on the stage. This is William Seymour, who is the um, uh, he's really the father of the Pentecostal movement. He was the one that ran the Azusa Street. God used him to preach that revival that went on nonstop for three and a half years. So it's like having church that doesn't stop because God's still there and he'll move on somebody to get up and either preach or pray or something like that. So they did that 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three and a half years. Now, is this three and a half year thing is interesting because many ministries, revivals last that long that intensity and that's exactly the length of time that jesus earthly ministry lasted and so you'll see this three and a half year thing be very very common like uh oral roberts once told benny hen he said benny he said just be prepared now because this is not going to go on with this intensity in your ministry forever it appears benny's probably caught some kind of wave that he's been able to ride it out a lot longer, amen, uh, but not with the intensity that he's done it in the past. It kind of see it'll wane after a while. You just have to, instead of trying to make it happen, you just got to let God be in charge of it. But anyway, it <coughs> says, so William Seymour, uh, if you don't know, familiar with his his testimony, he was a, a African-American gentleman. His parents had been slaves, he was hungry for the power of God. He just loved God and he was hungry for what God was going to do in the earth. And he was in Texas. In Texas, they had Jim Crow laws, which people respected. Blacks and whites did not worship together. And so he heard of a man, uh, Charles Parham, who uh, was preaching the baptism in the Holy Spirit, something we kind of take for granted, right? Because we can get anybody baptized in the Holy Spirit, but this was a big breakthrough opportunity during that time because many people did not have the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so Seymour had, had tarried and prayed and fasted and done many, many things. And he got a chance to go to Parham's meeting, but he could not go inside the church. But he humbled himself and sat outside and they would kindly leave the door open so that he could hear what was going on on the inside. People don't understand this, but humility is a key. Hunger and humility are both keys to receiving from God. Because we all want power, but many times we don't humble ourselves to the degree we need to. See, a lot of people will read this story and take off on the racism thing. But you miss the whole point of what God's trying. You can go down that road if you want to, but I want to follow the man and see what the payoff was, amen, for humbling yourself. There are some, there are going to be things we're all going to have to do to show God our commitment to what he's doing in the earth. So, uh, uh, brother Seymour received what he could there, received the teaching. And then he was invited to, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, to a woman's home to preach for her. They had heard about him and sent for him. And when he came to preach, he got, he preached a couple of times and they found out he was preaching about the power of the Holy Ghost and they fired him and locked him out of the church. And so, um, he, he then began to pray and ask God where he was to go. Uh, there was a gentleman who was organizing prayer groups in the city. I'm not sure if it was Bartleman's or not, but he was able to ask Brother Seymour to come over to one of his prayer groups, and he could he could preach there. And that was the house on Body Bray Street where they he would preach about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they said that as he preached crowds of people will come and stand in front of that house to the point where uh, um, a few miles away there was a Grand Central Station where people were coming in and out of the city. Well, they would go down. It was usual and common for people on that in that area to see tons of people slain in the spirit, praying in tongues. And that was like two blocks away from this house. And so the power of God, when God pours out, he does it the way he wants to do it. Problem we have in, in with God's people is we like controlling everything. We want to get a committee. We want to be in charge. We want to elect officers and we want to, instead of letting God do what he wants to do. He's in charge, and that's all you need to know. And as long as people respect that, they will have power in the move of God. So William Seymour uh, was confronted by the police about the crowds of people on the porch and all of that, and they said, can you please find some place bigger to have this meeting because we can't have all this chaos. They would have, and that that was a horse and buggy days, and those days, if you fell down in front of a horse, he didn't know what to do. He just say, wait a minute, they couldn't go around, they won't step over, you just couldn't make them do that, and so it caused a lot of traffic jams everywhere that, uh, well, everywhere in that city. And so, um, uh, eventually they moved to, it really was an AME church. It had been a stable first, but the AME, no, it was AME church first. It was built as a church building. After the AME people left, 
they did start to make it a stable where they kept horses on the ground floor. So there were two floors to this building. Eventually, Brother Seymour and his family lived on the second floor. I think it was just he and his wife. And they would have tarrying rooms upstairs. So that whole place was on fire with the power of God 24-7 for as long as this revival lived. So this story right here is a little bit after the heat of the revival is is uh, over. It says, sometimes in 1910, Seymour just stood up on the stage, took the box off his head, and started prophesying. Now, this was his custom, and people will ask why did he have the power he had, and I've never read this anywhere before, but it said that he would... And, and it, these people he met are witnesses to it. And they would say, well, how did he get the power he did? They said he would get a box, put it on his head, come downstairs from his quarters upstairs, sit there with a box on his head, and when he took the box off, God would start pouring out his power. Got me? Somebody asked one of the people there, they said, well, did you ever pick up the box and try this? Oh, no, we wouldn't do that. You understand what I'm saying? So that was something that he as the leader in God, and it's amazing that people respected the order that was there. Amen? Because California was not a a Jim Crow state, but they still had their sundown laws. Like if you were black or a person of color, after sundown you were not allowed on the streets, you would be arrested. And so Brother Seymour broke down all that racial opposition because he would not allow that meeting to go one color. You got me? If there were people, too many white people sitting together, he'd come mix them up. Too many blacks together, come mix them up. Amen? Because he was serious about ending that thing. He wasn't mad. He wasn't vindictive. He wasn't getting even, or they never would have had the results that they had. But he was establishing God's order for that revival. And I'm telling you, it's his order for future revivals. You got me? That's why the devil is calling everybody racist over our airways 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because they're trying to reestablish a racial divide in this country because this is where God wants to pour out his spirit. And anybody who's got any brain will understand that God is not going to put up with any kind of division or animosity. Amen. And so if, if the enemy can revive the old tricks that used to work, he'll revive them. And hopefully Christians are crazy enough to start listening and picking this nonsense up. You got me? Amen. If you don't know that you're one race and that is the human race because you have Jesus spirit in you and you need to go back to elementary Christianity and find out who you really are. And so God wants us to break off all those demonic man-made differences and divisions and be one people. Amen. And not a fake thing, but a real thing. Amen. So anyway, it says sometime in 1910, Seymour just stood up on the stage, took the box off his head and started prophesying. He said in about a 100 years, there would be another revival like Azusa Street, only this time it would not be in one place. It would be all over the world. 
Now, I respect when people say they've seen an outbreak here and an outbreak there, but I don't get excited about one place because I know what God says he's going to do. So, you know, like if they say, what's going to break out uh, in, uh, in, in Orlando, Florida? And if you don't live there, you think, well, what's the point? You understand what I'm saying? And so these so-called words can kind of limit the availability and the faith of people to believe God to do what he needs to do wherever. We need the power of God better than the Mickey Mouse people do down there. You understand what I'm saying? They got their amusements. We need some things to keep us entertained in God. So he says there would be a return of the Shekinah glory and the miracles. This revival would not be just one person or just pastors. It would be with everybody in the body. This time, the revival will not end until the Lord returns. Seymour repeated this revelation more than once. All the saints told Tommy this prophecy. On the opposite coast of New York City, according to Charles Parham's granddaughter, Parham just stood up one day and declared the same prophecy, using almost the exact same words. This happened within a couple of days of Seymour's prophecy, They both pronounced that this modern-day outpouring would surpass Acts chapter 2, Topeka, and Azusa. Celebrate. We are now in the 100-year period, and you are alive at this time. According to Jesus in Luke 10.24, we are the envy of prophets and kings to see such an outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus said, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but didn't see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. The hundred year prophecy is coming to pass, as you will see in chapter 18, called modern day manna, miracles of today. The telling of these stories has triggered this next mighty move of God and fulfill prophecies spoken over Tommy decades ago. All right, so this next chapter is William Branham's prophecy over Tommy in 1960. I was at Clifton's Cafeteria in downtown Los Angeles for a full gospel businessmen's meeting of about a couple of hundred people shortly after I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Branham was the guest speaker this day. He walked by and I said, praise the Lord, Brother Branham. I wanted him to look at me. Now, when he was a kid, he was afraid of Brother Branham. Amen. He should be now. He's just doing it because he's bigger, I guess. But anyway, he said, I wanted him to see me this time. I was no longer afraid of him. I had the same Holy Spirit he did. He stopped, looked at me, and then went on. He then took one step, wheeled around, laughed, and pointed his finger at me and said, you're the one. I said, yeah. Later on, I thought, wait a minute, the one what? (laughs) I didn't know what he was talking about. This happened on a Saturday. By Monday, the saints started to tell me their stories. I met Tommy Hicks, an Assembly of God preacher, in all of five foot three inches, Prior to 1950, he didn't even know where Argentina was on the map. However, he's the one whom God called to Argentina in 1950 and had the great revival in that country. Tommy Hicks is the one who converted Juan Perón, who was the president of Argentina and at that time known as a 
dictator, uh, but he got saved. Amen. It is now an assembly of God nation. And many, many people go to Argentina and pray, get big results and soul winning and all that kind of stuff. Says, I met him while I was living at Pisgah. We went walking one day near the Rose Bowl and he told me about the vision he'd been having over and over and over. This mountain, which was the church, started melting down and a river started flowing from it. And every now and then a giant would get up and walk out of it. He said, call them giants or generals. I call them giants. I said, okay. Finally, he said, Tommy, a lot of years from now, you will be one of these giants. I got embarrassed. I'm 19 then, but I still got embarrassed. I'm a simple country boy from Oklahoma. I said, oh, that'll be you and Shakarian and Smith and Branham and Roberts. And he said, you stop. Now you take this seriously. Brother Tommy, listen to me. We won't be here, but you will be. I didn't realize that he was what he was talking about would happen 40 years later. Jean Darnell's prophecy to Tommy in 1966, the 60th anniversary of Azusa Street. Jean Darnell took up the pastorship at Angelus Temple after Amy Semple McPherson. So this woman was, now Amy Semple McPherson had a ministry that started prior to Azusa Street, but she was never really connected with that revival there, you know, to speak of. I'm trying to think. Look her up and see when she passed away. It was 30, 1930 something, but she was alive during that time. It says one day she came to the Herald of Hope office at Pisgah where I worked. She said, Brother Tommy, I have a word from the Lord for you. The Lord is showing me that all these stories that the Azusa Street Saints have been telling you and you have been learning and memorizing will someday be put into a book. I thanked her for her kind words, thought about what she had said, and then hid her words in my heart. I'm not one who goes and starts trying to make God's prophecies come to pass. When was it? 44. Okay, thank you. All right. So he says, she says, he says, I'm not one of these people who hears the word and tries to make it come to pass. Amen. And so when you, when you hide it in your heart, he says, but I don't forget, but I let God take care of it. Now I've seen Jesus twice. The last time I was visited by him, I was in my favorite hiding place up in the attic of the church in 1963. I had hiding places all over Pisgah when I needed to be by myself. The only light was my flashlight. I wanted a visitation, and David DuPlessis told me to simply start whispering Jesus. I thought I had whispered it only five or six times, but the alarm that I had set for two hours went off. I turned it off and then froze. It was like daylight in there. I looked down at my flashlight and it wasn't on. It wouldn't have made that much light anyhow. And I thought, that light, the light. Jesus, I looked over and saw the most beautiful sandals. I've never heard anyone say they saw him in sandals before. He wore these beautiful jeweled sandals and a robe I can't quite describe. It was snow white, but you could see little strands of gold and some little tiny jewels. The most beautiful piece I ever saw. 
I looked up and it was Jesus. I leaped and grabbed him with a bear hug around the waist and put my head in his stomach. I wasn't going to let go of my Lord. I felt his hand stroke the back of my head and he said, Tommy, be patient and be obedient. He kept repeating, be patient and be obedient over and over. I kept listening because he kept stroking the back of my head and I enjoyed that. All of a sudden, it was daylight outside. I think he just talked me to sleep because that was the only way he was going to get away. I was not going to let go. I thought, what was this experience all about? Later on, I'd want to tell one of these stories of the saints to somebody. I'd start to, and I'd hear his words, Tommy, be patient and be obedient. I couldn't tell any of the stories until the year 2006. 100 years after the start of the Azusa Street Revival. And then, all of a sudden, it was like a fire in me. I just had to tell. That was the first book. I met a woman associated with Billy Brim's ministry. Her name is Lynn Kellogg, and she was a young starlet in Hollywood who did a couple of Elvis movies. She now lives up on Prayer Mountain and sings nothing but patriotic and gospel songs. One day she came by and I said, hi, Lynn, how are you doing? She stopped, looked at me and started crying. I said, Lynn, what's wrong? She said, Brother Tommy, I feel like you didn't tell all the stories. He said, you're right. I said, you're right. She let me know that I wasn't getting any younger and I needed to start telling the rest of them. I guess God agreed. I didn't die when I should have in 2010. I've got more stories to tell in this second book. So Tommy did have a, a, a near-death encounter. God raised him up and healed him, and he went on to obey God and continue to tell these stories. But can you imagine having all that understanding and knowledge? And You know how it is with the body of Christ. We, we get a little trickle of power. We want to run <laughs> off and get cards printed and rent the biggest place in the world and you know what i'm saying we just can't wait but look at the discipline that the lord requires though for some people to hold on for the right timing for the right thing he says um these these and the bulk of his book and his stories have to do with introducing us to people that he met at pisgah uh home and he says say hello to sister carney and brother Seymour. Azusa ages are 17 and 36. So he tells the ages that these people were when they were present in the Azusa Street Revival. So Sister Carney was 17 and brother Seymour was 36 at the time that they were at Azusa Street. The police officers politely forewarned either shut it down or rent a place like a regular church or auditorium. You have gotten too big to continue to meet at this home. The home was on Bonnie Bray Street. The man the police cautioned was William Seymour. The revival meetings held there began as small gatherings led by William Seymour. They now flowed out into the front yard, the neighbor's yards, and onto the street as Brother Seymour preached from the porch of this small home in the Los Angeles area. Not only was Bonnie Bray filled to overflowing, But the power of God also was reaching one block away to Beverly Boulevard. Innocent people walking across the street would fall out in the spirit, speaking in tongues, not even knowing what was happening to them. 
It was 1906, so a turn-of-the-century traffic jam ensued since the horses pulling the buggies wouldn't step over the people lying in the road. Seymour had been invited to move from Houston to pastor a church in L.A. He preached his first sermon on the Holy Spirit one Sunday morning and returned that night to preach again. The door was padlocked, and a note informed them that he was fired. They didn't want this strange stuff. Mr. Asbury was a member of this church. He came up to Seymour and said, I knew they were going to do this, but I've got a house over on Bonnie Bray Street. You can preach from there. The Asburys also happened to be one of Frank Bartleman's prayer groups praying for revival. <clears throat> Brother Seymour realized that, realized that he needed a much larger gathering place as the crowd grew larger and larger with each passing day. Looking for a place to meet, he found an abandoned warehouse at one, at one time was used as a Methodist church. The warehouse was perfect, and the only thing keeping Seymour from renting the building was money. That night, he needed to move. The need to move was heavy on Seymour's heart. He prayed to God for direction, and before the evening was over, he had received his answer. God instructed him to get on a trolley car as soon as the service ended and go to Pasadena. There was one hitch. By obeying God's instructions, Seymour was going to break the law, the sundown law, which stated no person of color would be on, could be on the streets of Pasadena after dark. True to God's leadership, Seymour didn't argue, but trusted and obeyed. He rode the trolley until God instructed him to get off, then followed as God guided him to an apartment nearby. Sister Carney, just a teenager but married, had arrived in Pasadena earlier that day. She was to meet with several of her friends who had been members of the First Baptist Church. They were hungry for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which somehow did not fit Baptist doctrine. They had been meeting together for months now in an apartment of one of the members of this group. This particular evening, they were coming together to pray for revival. They were certain that God was about to do something big in the Los Angeles area. Around 10.30 p.m. and after hours of fervent prayer, God brought together two elements of a, of a force that would usher in one of the greatest manifestations of God ever experienced by man since the birth of Christ. Seymour walked up to this apartment where God had led him and knocked on the door. Startled, the ladies went to the door together and opened it. They found a black man, blind in one eye, standing before them. Instead of slamming the door and calling the police, which would have been reasonable given the day and age, the owner of the apartment apprehensively asked, Can I help you? The answer to this simple, fretful question would startle and astonish those gathered for prayer. After several months of fervent prayer, prayer, God responded in an unusual manner. Seymour replied, you're praying for revival, right? When the ladies responded with a unanimous yes, Seymour made the bold statement, I'm the man God has sent to preach that revival. Without hesitation, the ladies invited him in. Their prayer meeting that evening and those pre that and those present were not coincidental. God had been preparing many for the miracle of Azusa. Without this ordained meeting, Azusa may never have happened. After some excited chatter, he preached to them and took up an offering that was more than enough to rent the Azusa Street warehouse. 
At this point, it is really important to understand Sister Carney's role in realizing the revival at Azusa Street. At the turn of the last century, many girls were married at the age of 14 after they completed 8th grade, which was considered high school at that time. Sister Carney was one of these young brides. In a prearranged marriage, she married a man of 19 after he completed college and had a job. This was in 1903. In 1904, at the age of 15, while attending church services at Pisgah, which you will read about later, Sister Carney responded to Dr. Yoakum's teaching on the infilling of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues. She was one of the first to receive the baptism. Her love for the Lord and her desire to introduce others to the exciting experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit led her to Pasadena. There she witnessed to several of her friends who were members of the First Baptist Church. By 1906, these ladies had been asked to leave the Baptist Church because of their belief. Unbeknownst to them, God was setting the stage for a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. When I met Sister Carney in the early 1960s, she was in her mid-70s, standing about 5 feet 9, with a slender bill of about 130 pounds. She was a typical little old granny with a gray-haired glory bun sitting on top of her head. She walked slowly with short steps, always wearing a pleasant smile. She had an older face with a little pointed chin, and when she smiled, her lips kind of sunk in. She still wore one of those flowery dresses ladies wore at the turn of the century, and yes, she wore granny boots, those little boots with the little hooks and eyes. About every third Monday night, I would walk to Sister Carney's apartment. As I approached her home, I would smell the enticing aroma of fresh-baked, guess what? (laughs) What, Nola, you remember? Chocolate chip cookies and cold milk. Yep, that's all he talks about in his testimony. Chocolate chip cookies and cold milk. Yep, he had to get them first before he would sit down and listen to us people talk. He said, while eating cookies and drinking a glass of cold milk, I listened to her tell Azusa stories like the one that begins this chapter. Sister Carney was one of my favorite storytellers because she could tell the stories of Azusa in better detail than anyone. Everybody appreciated this about her. Although she normally had a little high-pitched voice, when she told her stories, her voice was soothing yet filled with an excitement that had lasted for more than 60 years. Sister Carney, at 17 years old, was 17 years old at the start of the Azusa Street Revival. In fact, she was there from raising the rent for the building to the first day they entered to clean the building until they padlocked the door. In the beginning, even with the money Seymour raised for the rent from Sister Carney and her friends, the old dingy white warehouse still needed a lot of physical labor to get it ready for use. She and her friends from the apartment joined the group from Bonnie Bray Street to prepare the the dirty, cluttered building to serve as a worship center. They removed all sorts of junk that had accumulated through the years. The warehouse had been used as a barn, housing all sorts of animals. Isn't it interesting that God chose yet another humble dwelling to house his presence over 2,000 years later? Sister Carney recalls that Brother Seymour, Seymour assigned each of the volunteers an area to clean 
uh, the mounds of animal waste. With a warm smile, she told how grateful she was for the task of cleaning up the area that housed the small goats with their small droppings rather than cleaning up after horses and cattle. <laughs> After cleaning out the warehouse, the volunteers gathered and set up wooden fruit crates they had found thrown away behind the nearby grocery store. They placed two by the twelve planks, they placed two by twelve planks across the crates to serve as benches throughout the meeting room. Only with meager funds but unlimited ingenuity, with uh, these volunteers labored side by side until the meeting place was ready to be used, however God desired to use it. Thankfully, God had provided them a place large enough to house the anticipated services. During one of our Monday night meetings, I asked Sister Carney, what miracle do you remember that happened through you? She smiled and her lips kind of sunk in as the excitement welled up inside her. It was the woman who caught her husband with another woman. She had gotten into a fight with her and the adulterous woman bit off her ear. Sister Carney was smiling, but I laughed out loud. She gently chided me for laughing and said, Brother Tommy, it's not funny to catch your husband with another woman and then for the two of them to go to fighting so badly that the other woman bites off the wife's ear. Here's a story as I recall. When the wife entered the meeting room, she was holding a bloody bandage to the side of her head. Sister Carney noticed she appeared to be in tremendous pain and went over to minister to her. While waiting for Seymour to come down and the meeting to begin, Sister Carney asked her what had happened, and the lady told her about the fight. She told her that she didn't, did, didn't have the ear with her, and Sister Carney reached over and pulled the bandage off to see the wound that basically looked like a bloody, raw piece of meat. Without hesitation, she began to pray for the woman. After praying for her, the lady said that the pain was gone. Sister Carney looked at her wound again, and to her astonishment, right before her very eyes, a brand new ear began to grow out. Sister Carney sat there with her mouth open and simply exclaimed, Oh my God! This wasn't the first miracle that Sister Carney witnessed, but it was one of the first she witnessed as a result of God working through her own prayers. As she told me this story, she recalled it as if the miracle had just happened the night before. I asked Sister Carney about other miracles she witnessed or participated in. With a smile and a twinkle in her eye, she talked about the mighty works of God. According to Sister Carney, many people in wheelchairs and cots were brought in from the hospitals around the area. Often before Seymour would come downstairs or even when he was sitting with the box on his head, Sister Carney and others would go to the sick and crippled and pray for them, and they would get their healing. For those in wheelchairs, she and others would pull up the footrests, pray for them, and then watch them walk off, pushing away the empty evidence of their prior handicap. Sister Carney remembered a man who shook with Parkinson's disease so badly that he was wheelchair-bound. She walked up and just looked at him. His family said, aren't you going to pray for him? She answered, when I'm ready. Truth is, she said, he was shaking so badly that she was looking for the chance to grab his head. She recalled that he was quite an attractive man in his mid-30s 
Finally, she took his head, head in her hands, but not before he, she had put up the flaps of his wheelchair. This became known as the Carney rule. The flaps of a wheelchair must be up before praying to show faith. She grabbed hold of his head and took authority over the disease, commanding it to be gone in Jesus' name. The man started calming down. Pretty soon he was out of the wheelchair and up dancing around. I asked her, did you dance with him? She said, I was a married woman. I don't mean that, I said. Were you dancing too? Yes, but not with him. (laughs) I just smiled at her. One of these wheelchair healings stayed with Sister Carney in a special way. One man had heavy braces on his legs and had not walked in years. She recalled that his wheelchair had wheels made of wood. She prayed for him, and he was miraculously healed. His name was Brother Aubrey, and he was pastor of a big church in L.A. I actually got to meet him because he would come to Pisgah to see his precious sister Carney. During one of the visits to Pisgah in 1960, Brother Aubrey shared his version of the miracle healing. Sister Carney didn't say a word to him. She just walked off, pulled the footrests up, put his foot down, and then got the other foot, lifted it up, and then laid it down. Remember, his legs had very heavy braces on them. Next, she told him to get up and walk, but he told her he couldn't walk because of the heavy braces. Sister Carney responded by getting the people who were with him to take off his braces so he could walk. They did, and he did. He got up and walked. I was amazed at the story and asked Sister Carney about how many miracles God had used her to personally perform. She told me that God blessed her by using her two or three times a day, and three to four days a week she attended. That six to eight miracles... (laughs) a week for over three and a half years do the math our talks turned from miracles performed by god through the faithful saints to the difference in miracles when brother seymour was preaching sister carney explained that when brother seymour would come down there were even greater miracles seymour never had a set pattern rather he would come down put the box over his head Then he would take the box off when directed by God, get up and do what God told him to do. Sometimes he would go to a certain section of wheelchairs or to a certain section of cots for people who had been carried in from the hospital. She explained that to her astonishment, Seymour would point at them and say, everyone on the cots or the wheelchairs, you're healed in Jesus' name. Everyone on the cots or the wheelchairs would get up and walk around fully healed of whatever malady he or she suffered. Our conversation would turn from the miracles performed by Seymour to Seymour himself. He was blind in one eye and the son of slaves. He listened and learned about the Holy Spirit from Charles Parham, who preached in the suburb of Houston called Pasadena, Texas. Seymour sat outside the sanctuary and listened through a crack in the door. He would go in and sit with a, he couldn't go in and sit with a congregation because of his color and Jim Crow laws. But Seymour didn't get mad. Now see, this is what the devil's trying to do now. You got me? Because now everybody's a racist. You can't trust anybody. We're starting this accusation and this accusing thing to keep people stirred up and angry. 
Why? So you can miss the move of God. You understand what? This is serious, folks. This is not just people do this and, and, well, you know, it's still racism here. Don't you ever dare say that. Because that is not your issue. We have one issue and that's sin. And once you deal with yours, then God will empower you to go deal with others. But you can't get tripped up by all of this propaganda that's number one, it's pumped out 24-7 on cable network news all day long. Instead of God's glory being talked about 24, they have our platform. We're supposed to be where they are. You understand me? But falling for their antics will not get us there. You don't have a racial problem. You don't have any problem. Jesus took care of all of that at the cross. Now you can go down that road if you want to, but I'm telling you, that's the wrong road. You heard it here first. He says he sat outside the sanctuary and listened through a crack in the door. He couldn't go in and sit with a congregation because of his color and Jim Crow laws. Those laws were abolished with the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s, folks. They don't have them laws anymore. Nobody can keep you out of no place. You know what they're keeping us out of now is because of the Holy Spirit in us. And see, if you get persecuted, if you get locked out of anything, it's because God lives in you. It's not because of your color. See, the devil wants you to think it's a color thing to keep you bound up so you don't get loose and do what God called you to do. Say amen anyway. I know you're confused, but say amen anyway. I bind confusion in Jesus' name. You know what I'm saying. This is nonsense. God set you free. You're free indeed. Nobody going to stop you from doing anything. There are Christians that are paying a heavy price to stay free in God. People own a bakery. You got to you gotta put two men and two women on a cake together to keep your business. Do you understand me? That's persecution. Seymour sat outside the sanctuary and listened. He didn't get mad. He just sat outside and listened. He wanted whatever they had, and he got it. Humility and let go of anger will always help you get it. In a short time, Parham would be sending people like John Lake and F.F. Bosworth to Azusa Street to come under Seymour's anointing before they went to the mission field. Before you go overseas as missionaries, go to Azusa Street. Make sure you become friends with Seymour. Make sure you hang around him, Parham instructed. Get all of his anointing you can. God loves irony. The black man who had to sit outside Parham's doors became the man whom everyone sought. The world came to Azusa. Amen. The segregation that Seymour and so many sadly experienced stands in great contrast to what Azusa Street became in that same period of history. Azusa Street was the first fully integrated church in America. Seymour almost became fanatical about it. When he would come down from his apartment above the church, if 20 or more of the same color was sitting together, he'd split them up. Uh, He wouldn't tolerate it. 
he he said we were to be one in the Lord. And he meant it. Amen. He went as far as saying that once a person becomes a Christian, he or she becomes a new creature that never existed before and belongs to a different race, the Christian race. We stay the same color, but we're all one race. In fact, when the saints told me their stories, they never mentioned the color of a person they prayed for. Ever. It's as if everyone was colorblind. Frank Bartleman said it simply, the color line was broken by the blood. Amen. And that's what we stand on. It was in Houston at Parham's church that Seymour met Lucy Farrow, who nannied Parham's children. However, Parham and Lucy uh, had Lucy around to do more than just watch his young ones. She carried such an anointing that whomever she touched would immediately start speaking in tongues. Lucy was the one who brought Seymour to Los Angeles. Eventually, she would become the first missionary to be sent out from Azusa Street. I wanted to know more about Seymour, this great man with whom I was awestruck. Mama Cotton was also another missionary who came from Azusa Street. She would establish more than 60 churches in the Los Angeles area. Mama Cotton blew a shofar, and when she did, the Shekinah glory would fall. I'm not going to go there, okay? I'm just going to skip that. (laughs) Amy Simple McPherson invited her to Angela's Temple to speak, and when Mama came, she brought her shofar. She'd preach for about 30 to 40 minutes, then she'd say, it's time for God to go to work. She would blow her shofar, and the Shekinah glory would fall. Great miracles followed. Seymour wanted everyone who was at Azusa Street to go out and spread what was there into their neighborhoods, cities, and the world. Sister Carney, a treasure chest of information, was happy to oblige. Her story continued with the box on his head. When Seymour came down to the meeting, he would sit down and put a box on his head. At first, it startled Sister Carney. Sometimes he would sit with the box over his head for 10 minutes, and sometimes it would be an hour or more. Although the practice seemed ridiculous, Sister Carney realized that he was obeying God, no matter how silly or ridiculous it appeared. The apparent act of humble obedience led to mighty power when he removed the box. This act of humility was critical to the power of God displayed through Brother Seymour. Seymour and Sister Carney became friends, and after Seymour married, Sister Carney would often join them for dinner. Even in a social setting, she could feel the anointing on Seymour. She recalled that Seymour was very pleasant to be around. He was a humble man who always had a gleam in his eye, a smile on his face, and a deep resonating voice. There was no question about his anointing of God. She recalled that if you touched Seymour, a kind of electricity would shock you. The current was so strong that the first time she touched him during a meeting, she almost passed out. Even his wife, Jenny Moore, would often have to move to the couch from their bed because she couldn't touch him during the night without feeling electricity. When Brother Smith, our pastor at Pisgah, asked Sister Carney what caused the miracles at Azusa to stop. She replied, it stopped when Brother Seymour stopped putting the box over his head. When he quit coming down and putting the box over his head, it started dying. 
Sister Carney said that she asked Seymour why he stopped, but he wouldn't answer her. Over the years, he suffered increasing ridicule and persecution because of the box, especially as his reputation grew as thousands upon thousands came to Azusa over the three-and-a-half-year period. My co-author, Michelle, has a compelling, maybe controversial thought. She said, Seymour always listened to and obey God. That's why he put the box on his head in the first place. Why would he suddenly stop? If he saw the glory withdrawing, why would he not put that box back on his head as quickly as he could? Fear of man, possibly, but what if God told him not to put the box on his head any longer? The glory was there for three and a half years, the same length of time as Jesus' ministry. Perhaps God intended it to last only that long. Michelle continued, Remember, many such as John Lake came to Azusa for the anointing, received it, and then went out into the mission field, encouraged by Seymour to take Azusa Street to the world. Revivals end, but the anointing remains with those who seek and receive it. Now, what what we are believing God for, what we know God has said, is that this revival will not end. That's why it won't be televised. You're going to have to come out and get it wherever God says it's pouring out, and you've got to go and do what God says to do with it. And this is really what caused them to end, is disobedience to the instruction that God gives people who carry this anointing. First of all, we got to remember it doesn't belong to us. The power of God belongs to God. And as long as we stay obedient under that anointing, it will stay as long as God wants it to stay. The other thing that he showed me about previous moves of God and why he had had us start this ministry was he said that one of the biggest problems with revivals is they peter out because nobody watches them prayerfully. See, they get to splashing around in the water of God and the glory of God, and they forget the things that caused it to come in, the prayer, the sacrifice, taking authority, praying in these different things. So that's why he set up watchmen. You see more watchmen now. When we, we started, we were like the first one. You go online and try to research the word watchmen, you saw nothing. Now there's tons of them on there, amen? And so we always ask God to raise up true watchmen. we got to watch over the work. When it gets stupid, you got to report that to God and start to pray and ask God what to do to cause his glory to increase in the earth. And I don't believe in competing with the devil for space in a place to to work for God. I believe in taking authority over him and moving him out because the king of glory is here. You don't share space with the devil. Pretty soon you're compromising with his doctrine and all his crazy stuff. You know, there are many things that I won't do for a platform or a place to preach. Why? Why should I? I've been doing pretty good obeying God, amen, and I know what I'm called to do. So uh, other things don't really entice me, you know. People say things like, oh, I'm going to tell you so-and-so about you. And so I say, yeah, you know, do that. You understand? <laughs> Help yourself, you know what I'm saying? But I'm not going to get excited and go run off with them and say, oh, so-and-so's going to give me a big platform to preach on and make me somebody. It's good to stay humble, folks. Stay in your little box, your little place, with just enough room to do what you need to do. 
And when there's time to do more, God will put you in the more. Amen. If that ever comes to you. We got to learn how to obey God, folks, and, and, and follow instructions and know what he's called us to do. So um, let me see. Okay. It says, uh, we can only surmise now. However, Michelle's point makes me remember a conversation I had with a professor of church history at Rama Bible Training College. Uh, surprisingly, this professor told me that his own research revealed that most of the big revivals lasted only three and a half years. I asked Sister Carney how Seymour, how old Seymour was when he died and what he died of. She said he was only 52 years old. That was in 1922. Not old at all. She sadly recalled that many people turned on him. And the ultimate offense happened in 1913, three years after the Shekinah glory ended. At the Arroyo Seco revival in 1913, no one knew him or acknowledged him. He felt like a failure. Though only one really could say that Seymour only though no one could say what he really died of she said i think he died of a broken heart sister connie offered i have a book titled the 100 most important events in christianity seymour and azusa street are listed and remembered in that book his heart may have been broken but he neither was a failure nor forgotten he is in eternal glory now of course any discussion about azusa street turned to the shekinah glory when I asked about her experience with the presence of God's spirit, Sister Carney's face would light up. She described it as being a part of heaven. To her, it was like breathing pure oxygen, and to her wonderment, it was always present. When I asked her to describe the flaming Shekinah glory reported by many, she told her story. She remembered the fire department coming because of a call that the building was on fire. When they arrived, they didn't smell any smoke or see any evidence of fire. She didn't run out with the firemen. She recalled that it was Seymour, Bosworth, Lake, Smith, and Signs who ran out. Lake explained that the fire was coming down from heaven into the building, and a fire was going up from the building, meeting the fire coming down. Fascinated, Sister Carney went out one night, walked about a half a block, and saw the awesome sight for herself. To her, this divine connection of fire coming down from heaven and going up to heaven was just further evidence of God's mighty presence in that place. Sister Carney noted that although the Shekinah glory cloud, the misty stuff, was present all the time within the building, this divine fiery connection wasn't an everyday occurrence whenever this connection was present the power of god was even more intense within the meeting and the miracles were even more amazing i wanted to know how the services were conducted every day sister carney could usually answer all my questions seymour came down in the morning the afternoon and again in the evening he'd stay about three or four hours each time He had an apartment right above the sanctuary where he'd pray for seven hours a day, eat and sleep. There were people coming and going all the time, even late at night. We're talking about hundreds a day throughout the 24 hours. If somebody wanted to get up and say something, they could. 
No one interrupted Seymour when he was at the meeting, but anyone could get up and talk. Seymour didn't care, except you couldn't get out, be up and out of line. Now remember that when somebody gets mad at us for throwing them out for prophesying. We don't throw people out, we just make them stop. You understand what I'm saying? You have to have divine order. You can't let people just come in and take things away from you. And, and, you know, then everything's harmed and everything's hurt. She would invite them to go with her as new people arrived and see if they could minister to them. These young men who were around 30, 13 or 14 years old partnered with Sister Carney and went throughout the crowd wanting to be used by God to perform miracles and help keep people healed. Now, this is the way believers are taught to minister. You go with somebody who is anointed and experienced and you hold off to the side until they tell you to come up because when the anointing's on you, they know it. See, this is never a competition. You understand what I'm saying? It's never, you know what I'm saying. And this is how you learn how to flow with the anointing. This is how it settles. It will not settle in an atmosphere of competition and strife. The Holy Spirit will just leave. Amen. And you'll be out there with nothing. And so she would invite them and they would go through the crowd. These were teens running around having a ball, praying over people and looking for people who needed healing. Sister Cardi was so very close to John G. Lake, who had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit up in Zion, Illinois, and came to Azusa as a young man, as instructed by Parham. So see, it wasn't just the tongues. This is a mistake that people make. They'll get one gift and run off and try to take over the world where they see it over and over and over again. So he had the gift of the Holy Spirit, but he came to Azusa Street to get immersed and get trained in it. You have to obey God. You have to stay under training and authority till God releases you. You got me? This ain't Facebook ministry. This is the real ministry of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And he's going to use every one of us. You got me? In greater miracles. Now, I know y'all think, well, I pray for people. I do this. I ain't talking about that. I'm talking about this. I want you to get your hunger for this dimension of working for God. You understand what I'm saying? And, And not... Just pray for somebody and they get a little bit better. They feel a little bit more joyful and that's it. You want people to get 100% whole by the power of God because it's possible. Amen. With God, it's possible. So it says, uh, Lake stated that at Azusa Street, God told him that any disease that came in contact with him would die. While he was in South Africa doing a, an outbreak of bubonic plague, he insisted that some of the live disease be put on his hand. They took a sample after it was in contact with him and looked at it under a microscope. My God, it's dying. Within seconds, the sampling was dead. Some have credited Lake with stopping the plague in that region. Back in the States of Spokane, Washington, Lake returned and opened up healing rooms and closed down hospitals. Though the original building where Lake housed his healing rooms burned down in a fire years ago, the Spokane healing rooms were reopened on the same location in 1999 and are still in operation. Sister Carney is what I would call an Azusa legacy.
her undimmed excitement and enthusiasm as she relived these stories with me each month allowed me to experience azusa through her eyes like john the apostle she shared with me what she had heard had touched with her hands and had seen with her own eyes and experienced with her own heart from the beginning amen all right so we're going to stop there praise god amen 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 praise god amen amen god is good amen he's a good god so we're going to believe god for greater amen for what he's promised this isn't something that we're just making up uh, you know that that we want it because of you know hey let's get a little attention here we can do this and we can do that but this is something god wants to do he so wants to serve people he wants his people whole and he wants them well so um uh, shannon put on some music for me and we'll just pray in the spirit for a while and begin to thank god for the outpouring of his spirit at the conference thank him for amen and for in this place right now amen we don't want to limit him put him off to a specific day but we're going to thank him for uh releasing his power just begin to worship him and pray in the spirit you know, just allow God to edify your spirit. Let him build you up to expect more. Amen. Father, we expect more. We expect the more. Thank you, Lord, for the people watching on the Internet. Under the sound of my voice, you expect more in the name of Jesus. Expect more in Jesus' name. Father, we expect the more. We expect what you promised us. We thank you, Lord, for your promise of the Shekinah glory, that glory that blankets the whole atmosphere and makes it makes the miracles happen, Lord. We know it's not us. We know it's you. So we thank you, Lord. We bless you and we praise you. We magnify you, Lord. We lift you up. Thank you, Jesus. Just pray in the tongues a little louder. <clears throat> Give it all you got. Thank you, Jesus. We bless you. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory, 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 glory to God. Glory to God. Thank you, Lord. We bless you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We praise your holy name. Praise your holy name. Praise your holy name, Jesus. Hallelujah. We glorify you. Let your glory fall, Lord. Let your fire fall. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You're worthy to be praised. You're worthy to be praised. You're worthy, worthy, worthy to be praised. Hallelujah. We lift you up, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Praise you, Jesus.
Father, I thank you for now faith. I thank you for now faith. I thank you for now faith in the heart of your people. Thank you, Lord, to impart now faith to us in Jesus' name. Now faith. Thank you, Lord. Faith that says we don't need to wait. We don't have to wait. Thank you, Lord, for now faith in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Impart that to us, Father. We thank you for it, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for now faith. For now faith in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Don't let us be satisfied with 